uh, years ago, I sat uh, quite fresh-faced. I had brown hair. That's how long ago it was. Uh, I was in a pastor's conference hearing a denominational leader uh, launch a new church planting strategy. Now, normally that kind of thing would absolutely thrill me. And I was really, really excited at the start of it. But in my kind of ministerial infancy, I was seriously confused by the end of it. He was saying that we need to reach more people for Jesus. Yes and amen. Uh, we need to do something about this prevailing decline in church attendance in our country. Yes and amen. But we need to break the mold of traditional church and look for new ways of doing it. What? Uh, what exactly does that mean? Well, he continued, and he started to get into the ins and outs of strategy by saying, well, functionally, what we have been doing just doesn't work anymore. People are not changing. Churches are not growing. And culturally, who we are, what we do, what we teach doesn't appeal anymore to the extent that people who don't know Jesus don't even think about coming anymore. So what was the grand plan? It had a fancy title. I can't remember the title. It was, it was the fancy plan of coffee shop churches, woodland walk churches, the kind of churches that focus much more on conversational community and participation. And while there's a place for all of that, are those the most important things that a church does? I, I raised my hand in my naivety, really, and ask, what place does preaching have in these new churches? And some people in the room laughed. And the leader replied in certain terms, saying, gone are the days of the boring monologue that is preaching. Born are the days of the dialogue over a venti latte. My heart sank. As much as we enjoy lattes, I hope your heart sinks at the thought of that as well. Maybe that's what you think about preaching. Maybe that's exactly what you think right at the very start of this. I'd actually rather be in a coffee shop where I wouldn't walk. I'd rather have a latte. This does already seem like a rather boring monologue. I'll try and liven up a wee bit for you. I might not. I'll get in trouble. But anyway... We need to understand the central place of something very, very important in God's plan for his churches, in God's plan for his people. And it's preaching. It's me doing the kind of thing that I'm doing just now. But go back to that event all those years ago. Why do you think pastors do that? Why do you think a group of pastors and under a denominational leader decide, do you know what? Things aren't working out very well. Uh, people aren't really coming to our churches. In fact, some people are leaving our churches. I know what we should do. We should completely change what the church is and what the church does. Why do you think people want to do that? Well, I think there are two reasons fundamentally. They've lost confidence in the biblical command to preach the word. And I think they've got congregations that have lost their appetite for it. And in all likelihood, both problems exist together. Go back to the start of that leader's presentation. 
all the bits that he, we've just agreed with, that yes, it's hard to see this. People are not coming to faith. People are not growing in their faith. People are leaving the church, etc., etc. Now, imagine ourselves back then, but this time in a parallel universe. What would you want him to say right then? I think he should have opened up 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, and said, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, pastors, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge the duties of your ministry. That would have been better, wouldn't it? Well, Paul is addressing a situation not too dissimilar to that of the churches nowadays, as he writes to Timothy. The people in Timothy's church, as we've seen in this series already, are, it's like they're demanding something else. Uh, and some of the people in the church have not just departed from the truth, but departed from the church. They're going somewhere else, following these so-called pastors who have departed from the truth. Timothy's having a little bit of a wobble about this, and he's wondering, what on earth should I do? They're asking for a kind of gospel that removes or extracts the suffering. They want to kind of genetically modify the Christian experience. But Paul writes in the first three chapters and says it's just not possible. As it was for Christ, it will be for us. Suffering first, glory later. But as we'll see at the end of this passage, it will be worth it. Do not bail. Do not wobble. And the whole letter has been just this, this buoyancy for Timothy. Paul's been buoying him up. He's given him strength and encouragement from all that we've seen. Listen, you're, you have spirit-given gifts. Get into work, chapter 1. You have um, the Spirit's indwelling presence. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. In chapter 3, he's already address the fact that there are false teachers and they need to be dealt with. Here's who they are. Here's what they do. Here's how you recognize them. As for you, he says, you know what to do. You know what the Holy Scriptures are. God breathed. And the divine authority that even that explanation provides for us tells us in no uncertain terms, what else are we going to do? But take this, these words, so simple, black on a white page, on some of your devices. Take it, study it, tear it apart, figure out what it means, preach it. Don't just teach it, no boring monologues, I agree. Preach God's word. God's word clearly taught and properly applied, transforms lives, builds this church. 
saves people from their sins. It's exactly how I became a Christian. Exactly. So what should Timothy do? Stick with the true gospel and join with Paul in suffering for it? Or go with some in the church in the direction of this more culturally acceptable, even in Ephesus, coffee shop Christianity? Should he give in to the popular demand or courageously stand up and take proper care of the members entrusted to his care? Well, we see what he's going to do. These are strong words. And I want to deal with uh, verses 1 to 8 in two chunks tonight. Uh, Preach the word, point one. And never ever stop, point two. Let's start with point one. Preach the word. I want everybody to understand tonight, even the young people, as you sit in a service tonight, uh, as we help you start to understand what preaching is, right? It's not just this boring monologue full of stuff that a guy just wants to say. It is actually taking and opening up for you the very word of God. There is nothing else in this world, nothing else in all existence that can provide for you the kind of information that will bring salvation to your souls that will mean that when you die, you'll go to heaven and not to hell. It's that serious. So even if you're tired, I'm tired. I really wanted to go for a nap before I came out tonight, but I didn't. We're all tired. Let's Fix our ears on what's to be said in the explanation of this. Preaching, verse 1, is a very serious business. And I want to show you that verse 1 tells us why. Look at the motivators that are in verse 1. Have you ever seen a list of motivating factors as well stacked as this to lay up to the charge to preach the word? God's inescapable presence. Christ's unavoidable judgment. Christ's unpredictable return and Christ's future unimaginable kingdom. In light of all of that that's lined up for us, I give you this charge. Now, that's the basis for the charge. So preaching the gospel is so important, Timothy, so important, Charlotte Chapel, because faithful preaching is what faithful pastors do when they know actually that they're going to have to give an account And it's what faithful pastors will do when they know that their members will have to give an account before God. And once more in this letter, as we've seen before, Paul points us forward to something in the future in order to make it shape how one lives in the present. We know how that goes. The prospect of failing exams shapes how you study today. The prospect of a summer holiday shapes how you spend your money today. In the same way, preachers uh, look at the prospect of the future for us and for the people of God. That shapes how we spend our time in ministry. So with those motivating factors in mind, we agree then that preaching is a serious business. Therefore, preaching is a primary task. That's what we see in verse 2. preach the word. Now, what is preaching? Essentially, it is proclamation, just like it says in verse 2. But the word for preaching in there is not the same word as in teaching. It's a different word in the original language. It's actually a word that's used to describe an authoritative public announcement, like the old town criers. 
I mean, before we had uh, news bulletins, or you could say, Alexa, play my flash reports. You had guys who walked into the town market square, rang a big bell, shouting out, hear ye, hear ye, a message from the king, etc., etc., and uh, know that he loves you lots, and all that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of proclamation that we should have in mind here. And it is a corporate thing, by the way. Some of their criticisms still deride the monologue, but it's actually corporate. You see, preaching involves, involves both preacher and listener exulting in. That means feeling deeply and rejoicing in the word together. The one preaching rejoices in the word that is being preached. The one listening rejoices in the word being preached to them. It's proclamation. And it's the words, just like it says. It's preaching of the word. Now, the word in this passage here refers to the gospel, specifically the good news of Jesus coming, his living, his dying, his rising, his ascending, his returning, and his final reigning. Now, just because we preach the gospel doesn't mean we just preach from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, the gospel is the central subject of the entire Bible. As Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. So that's why it's good practice to do what this church has made its practice to do over millennium, you know, long time. We work through books of the Bible bit by bit, passage by passage, verse by verse, as best we can. Now, I want to plead with you to never, ever, ever take this for granted. There are plenty of self-proclaimed preachers who I believe are actually nothing of the sort. Now, some are simply liberal and happy to admit it. Some are happy and, well, actually, some are obvious in their unfaithfulness, like some of the teachers that uh, 1 Timothy 1 talks about, those who depart from the truth and turn to meaningless talk. These are the kind of people who depart from the truth and say, yeah, do you know this bit of the Bible? I don't really believe that anymore. I just, I just think science nowadays has disproved that, so pfft, a bit of it's ripped out. Okay, that's what the liberal does. It's a, the Bible's a pick and mix. Now, Liberals can fill a large number of pulpits in Scotland, and I believe they do, talking about the things in the nation that people want to talk about. Poverty, uh, climate change, gender, everything except sin, judgment, Jesus, salvation, hell, atonement, things like that. And they can criticize conservative preachers. You don't care about people and their needs. You never talk about these things. Maybe some justification to that. But the fact is, I believe people are guilty of a greater unkindness. There's no greater unkindness that one person can give to another than to withhold the news of coming salvation and judgment and all the while entertain them into thinking they're going to heaven when they're not. How unloving. We do care about suffering, but especially eternal suffering. That's why we preach the gospel. There are others, though, who are just careless with God's words. And uh, David Helm, in his fantastic book, Expositional Preaching, has a couple of examples for us. He describes two of the most 
common types of people who are careless with God's word. And I'm telling you these things so that you can recognize them. It's possible for us who preach in this pulpit to slip into these fallacies, if you like, these errors. But if we do it on an ongoing basis, yeah, give us our P45. So he describes, Helm describes two of the most common types of preachers who are careless with God's word. There's an impressionistic preacher, as he calls them. Uh, impressionism is, of course, that form of art, like a Monet or a Van Gogh. I mean, up until the 1800s, the kind of primary artistic method was realism. So you painted what was actually there. So the thing that you ended up with looked more like a photograph than a, I was going to say a mess, but that's really disparaging to the likes of a Van Gogh, who's extremely talented in his day, of course. Okay, so impressionism, you don't paint exactly what's there like it's a photo, you paint what you like to see there, your, your impression, hence the name, of what is in front of you, you paint it in your own way, hence Van Gogh's, you know, funny looking faces. Again, it was really disparaging, and I'm sorry to those who love art. I do love art, that's, I'm gonna move on. Um, the, so, Helm argues that that's what many preachers do with the word of God today. They don't retain the realism of the word of God. But that's essential. It's not made up. You're not allowed to take the pick and mix stuff. You've got to just preach what's there. Set forth the truth plainly, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. But people exaggerate what they like. They omit what they don't like. In the end, preach sermons that are ultimately a distortion. Or another error is described as the inebriated preacher or the drunk preacher. Helm argues some people use the Bible the way a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. It's helpful, isn't it? How many preachers come with an idea of what they want to say, then use the Bible like some kind of encyclopedia of proof text useful for backing up the very thing that actually they just want to say? God's word has not set the agenda. The outline of the passage has not really made it into the outline of the sermon. No, rather, there's a springboard going on. There's just you're just leaning on it and then you walk away and you talk and you tell lots of lovely stories and you wear nice jeans and a cool shirt and brown shoes wait no anyway that's all right so this is not what Paul is charging Timothy with Paul is charging Timothy with the responsibility then to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ by teaching the whole Bible that's all caught up in those three simple words preach the words. And he says there, it involves great patience and careful instruction, lots of encouragement, lots of correction. You've got to keep at it. Pastors ought to preach the word, whether people are lapping it up or spitting it out. Nothing changes in relation to your task. Preach the word. Now, verses 3 to 4 add an additional motivation that really informs the way that we preach. From what's been said already, a pastor could perhaps justify a very shouty or angry kind of preaching. But verses 3 and 4 develop this charge to preach the word by stirring a sense of compassion in the preacher. I mean, what is the, worst what is the heaviest burden that a pastor bears? It's, it's actually seeing a member reject the truth and wander from the faith. That's a painful thing for people you love and pray for and invest in and disciple. And verses three and four point this out. Preaching is actually a church's lifeline. 
I think this is very important. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. And let's ask, who is Paul talking about? So he says, The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Who is the subject of this, these two verses? Who is Paul talking about? He's not talking about the false teachers anymore. He's talking about church members. He's talking about people who are going to hear preaching. Now, what are these people doing in these two verses? Well, from what we read there, they are intolerant of good preaching. They want something different. And they are gathering false teachers around them. You see what this says? It says that the demise of the church isn't just down to false teachers. It's down to church members who lose their appetite for the word of God. That's why this is a passage that's fundamentally vital, not just for people like me who preach, but for people like you who hear it week in, week out. It's so important. Paul says their ears itch. It's not a fungal infection. It's a heart condition, really. They desire something different to the Christianity being set forth. They desire something, as I mentioned before, something that avoids suffering and hardship, or maybe, I don't know, giving, or serving, or conviction of sin, or anything that just demands too much of us. We can turn from truth to myth. And notice what they do. They're actively finding pastors who lead them and who'll tell them not the things that they essentially need to hear, but simply the things that they want to hear. That's a tragic mix. Listen, when people depart from the truth, don't automatically think that they're going to depart from a church. They'll either go somewhere else and find something that suits them or, to try and, or they'll try and change the one they're in by being obstacles to the work and then trying to bring in someone that fits their mold. Please pray we'll never fall into that error. It is fascinating, isn't it? In those two verses, I mean, chapter three is all about how to identify and how to deal with false teachers. But in, in chapter four, in the midst of this passage, it really is, the pinnacle of the letter, Paul is telling Timothy what to do and warning him about the problem of church members who in their hearts desire something other than what's being preached. Do you ever do that? Do you ever find yourself desiring something better, something different to what's being preached on a Sunday? different content, different deliveries. I think Paul gives us in verses 3 and 4 a simple how-to, how to destroy a church in four simple steps. One, reject the truth. Two, reject truth-tellers. Three, appoint a self-serving pastor. Four, embrace false doctrine. It's quite scary. But Timothy must not give in to people's desires, though. That's why Paul is telling him to preach the word. 
No, he is told in verse 5, keep your head. Don't follow the crowd, Timothy. Keep your head, preach the words, press on, keep going, stay faithful, trust your instruments, trust God's plan. He has placed preaching, strange as it may seem, at the very heart of the spread of his gospel to all nations. As chapter 3 has just highlighted for us, it's able to make you wise for salvation. It corrects you, it trains you, it rebukes you. So it's vital for salvation and sanctification, the two things that will take us to heaven. So don't forget the crowd out there, Timothy. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Tell other people but never ever stop preaching the word. Now the application here for us is very, very simple. For members, it's, it's an encouragement to be aware of attention deficit. Could be caused by many different things. Could be caused by this, our techni technological age. I mean, ours is the age of these pithy sound bites and immediate interaction. Most communications by very short email. Sometimes it's hard to listen to 30 or 40 minutes. Most communication, um, uh, please train yourselves to listen well. I mean, if I was standing here as an executor ready to tell you how much you'd inherited from a generous benefactor, we'd all be very attentive, I'm sure. But the people who stand up here week by week have something more precious than a million pounds to give you. So. Take care how you listen and be careful what that heart longs for. And remember what was behind the issue here for the people in the church in Ephesus. It was a desire for a more comfortable Christianity. Brothers and sisters, fight to crucify and kill desires for a comfortable Christianity. The cross didn't have a cushion. No, prepare yourselves to suffer and endure hardship. Our rest, when it comes, will be in the end, and it will have been worth every single ounce of endurance and obedience along the way. The word for pastors, of course, is, yes, this is hard work. It's, it is tough work to read the Bible, understand it, to have that underlying anxiety. What if I get it wrong? This is a big deal. So much. God puts so much weight on this. There's an anxiety in it. Preaching's hard. It's an absolute joy and delight, but it's really, really hard. Now, sometimes pastors can think, how can I keep doing this when it's hard? The anxiety about getting it wrong, the concern for the people entrusted to our care, the burden of responsibility for the care of their souls, and at times, even the demands for, for doing it better, finding time to get better at doing what we do. Brothers who preach, keep your heads, do the work, endure hardship in view of God's presence, in view of that coming judgment when we will give an account and they will give an account. Whether they're lapping it up or spitting it out, preach the words. Stay faithful to the task until you die. And I think verses six, and six to eight, lastly, are here primarily to show us that it's possible. 
brothers, it's possible, Timothy, to stay courageous and stay faithful to this task of preaching the word to the very end. And this is point two. Preach the word and never, ever stop. These are actually some of Paul's last words in the last letter that he has written. He has passed on the baton and this charge of all charges to Timothy. And he highlights in this passage that he is about to die. He's in Nero's prison. And there are three things in particular that I'm just going to whiz through for us. The first thing he highlights in here is that ministry is costly. Verse 6, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. He's not going somewhere. He's not going on another trip. He's about to die. That's his point. That's the departure. But what is this drink offering? It's kind of confusing if we don't have an understanding of the ceremonial practice back in uh, the Old Testament. Well, in the worship practices of God's people before Jesus came, there were lots and lots of different offerings. And the drink offering involved pouring out a costly liquid, usually wine, onto the ground or over an animal sacrifice. And it was costly in the sense that you felt the loss of this sacrifice, but because of your heartfelt devotion to the Lord God, you were willing to do it and happy indeed to do it. And I think this is exactly what Paul is conveying about his own ministry. He is like a drink offering. He has poured himself out in ministry. From the day he was called to this very day of his departure, his ministry was costly. But he's highlighting here, he's been willing to suffer the loss out of his heartfelt devotion to God. So he's given us a realistic understanding of what ministry is like. It's costly. For those of you who are thinking about it, we need to understand it's costly. It's no cruise liner. Ministry is costly. The next thing we see in verse 7 is Paul's delight at the fact that he has endured. Look with me at verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, that sounds dangerously close to bragging. Do you want to give me a great big pat on the back, you know, for, all, for this successful enduring and completion that I've achieved here? Well, that's not what he's doing in the slightest. He's just being realistic about his calling and his aim. You can read about his calling in Acts chapter 9 when the Lord is speaking to Ananias to go and speak to Paul and help him to see. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. That's his calling. And then Paul's very aims mentioned in Acts chapter 20 as he leaves the elders of this church family on the shores of Miletus. He spells it out what he's going to do. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And we know from another passage that the end point would be to preach the gospel in Rome. I must go to Rome. 
Paul said, convicted by the Holy Spirit. So you see, he's not bragging. He's actually almost solemnly marking the end. He's passing on a baton for preaching the gospel. To Timothy, well-trained Timothy, his protege, and saying, as you sit and you wonder whether or not you can continue in this ministry, look to me and my example. By God's grace, with God's help, with the very strength of the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I've run the race. I've kept the faith. And what is Paul's reward then? What is it he's looking forward to? A crown of righteousness. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So he says, I have a crown of righteousness waiting for me. It's not a righteousness that he has earned of his own. Of course, Paul has written entire books, like the book of Romans to explain that no one is made right with God by the works that they do. In Galatians, he speaks and holds some of his most strongest language for these false teachers who are saying that you can win your salvation by, a man is not justified by works of the law, Paul says. If anyone tells you that or explains that to you or preaches that to you, let him be accursed, Paul says in Galatians. It's that bad. Let him be condemned to hell. That's how serious it is. But no, he's saying, as I trust in the righteousness of Jesus, the judge who has seen me carry out the task that he's commissioned me to do will reward me because I've kept the faith. I've preached the word. I've done what he's called us to do, what he's called me to do. And Paul can face death knowing what awaits him confidently longing for that crown of righteousness. Can you imagine what it is? I can't get my head around this at all. What is it like to be rewarded by Jesus? Tumble that round for a second. To be awarded a crown of righteousness by the King of Kings. Think about that. I don't think I can fathom that. It's just too wonderful, isn't it? It's just out of this world wonderful. And yet that's the promise that's in store, not just for people like Paul, remarkable as he is, who've kept the faith, but for all who long for his appearing. Is that you? He's coming back, he's promised. He's coming back. And that will be both a day of salvation for some and a day of judgment for others. What will it be for you? If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted in him through faith and repentance, turning away from your sin and turning to him with joy, 
receiving his gift of forgiveness and life, then you will look forward to that day. If the return of Jesus is not the thing that you look forward to most, then that may be an indication that either you're a Christian and you may be caught up with the things of the world, comfort, materialism, or you may not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to turn from your sin and trust in him. He died on the cross to provide for us a great exchange, our unrighteousness for his righteousness. When he died on that cross, he took our sin upon himself and did away with it. And the glory of the, the book of Romans is this explanation of the fact that he takes his own righteousness and adorns us in it. He clothes us in his own goodness. So that as the Lord looks at us, it is as just as if we had never sinned. Incredible. My encouragement for you, if you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you've not, you're not longing for that appearing, we'd love to chat to you about this. I've got... Uh, couple of New Testaments and a Bible that I'll have down here. I'd love to give them away to you as a gift. Just one of them. You don't need to take all three. Uh, just one of them. I'd love to give them to you for you to read them. I'm going to put a post-it note in there somewhere to start just to give you a little lunch. You don't need to come back and tell me how you're doing, but I'd love it if you did. Or maybe you could talk to the person who brought you. Maybe you want to find out a little bit more. There's this uh, group of, uh, to a group called Christianity Explored where people get together um, where you together explore one of the accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, that's going to start up very soon. The details in your bulletin, but you can find out more from the Connect Corner down by the sofas there. We'd love for you to chat about that. Be involved in that. Or if you have been so moved by the Holy Spirit tonight to realize that actually I'm not longing for His appearing. I'm not a Christian. I'm not in good standing with God then you can tonight trust in him by simply saying, sorry, thank you, please. I'm sorry for my sins. I see them. Please forgive me. Sorry, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Please forgive me and come into my life. And if you're here tonight and you remember, I would love to give you a book. I've got about 13 or 14 of these books on expositional preaching. They're very much designed in a simple way to help preachers like me know how to approach, understand, and apply the Bible. But I want to give away 13 of these to church members so that you read it, you understand a bit more of the ins and outs of what we're trying to do on a Sunday. Then once you're finished reading it, I want you to pass it on to someone else who's not read it. And let's get as many people reading that as possible. Let's pray together.